Welcome to this week's edition of Island Recast. For more information on Grand Memorial Presbyterian Church or Pastor David, please go to gmpc.org. It's called the Triumphal Entry. Jesus entering Jerusalem the week before he was to be betrayed, hung on the cross to die. Amidst the fanfare and the, and the people yelling hosannas and throwing palm branches before him. But have you really ever stopped and asked yourselves why we call it the triumphal entry? Was it because of all the hoopla that day? Because if, if that's what we think about when we think of the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, I think that our thinking is a little shallow. It has to be more than that. I mean, really, how triumphal was His entry, humanly speaking? You'll remember the disciples, when they heard that Jesus has set His mind to go to Jerusalem, tried to talk Him out of it. He said, Lord, you need to stay out of that neighborhood. They don't like you there. In fact, there have been some who have threatened to kill you if you show your face in that neighborhood again. And let's remember the words of Thomas. You know, Doubting Thomas. I think he gets a bad rap, but that's another sermon for another day. It was Thomas. Jesus was not to be discouraged from going to Jerusalem. He had to go to Jerusalem. And it was Thomas who said to the other disciples, Well, let's go with him, that we might die with him. So there's some fear and trepidation amongst the disciples as they go into Jerusalem. But Maybe that fear and trepidation was abated a bit as the crowds grew and the, and the, and the adulations began and the palm branches were, were waving and people were singing, Hosanna. And they're thinking, okay, well, maybe this isn't going to be so bad after all. But one person knew. Jesus knew what awaited him that week. He knew that all these people who were celebrating his arrival and and waving the palm branches and cheering for him would, in just a matter of days, be the ones who were crying for his crucifixion. He knew that his disciples would scatter. I'm reminded of Jesus in the garden that Thursday that He instituted the Lord's Supper on His knees, praying so intently that He sweat 
drops of blood. The, 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 the capillaries in his skin popping because of the, the pressure that he was under, crying out to his heavenly Father, if there is any other way, let this cup pass. Where is the triumph in all of this? As we talk about the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, I think it was a triumph of God's love. I think it is a reflection of the height and depth and width and breadth of God's love that Jesus had to go to Jerusalem and He did. That, to me, is something to celebrate and to commemorate and remember triumphantly. The height and the depth and the length and the breadth of God's love is seen throughout Scripture no more clearly than it is seen in chapters 3 and 4 of the Gospel of John. If you have your Bibles, I would ask you to open them to the fourth chapter of the Gospel of John. We spent a couple of weeks looking at Nicodemus. Nicodemus represented the highest position in the social strata that was available at the day. There was not one thing that was not available to Nicodemus. He had it all. He was a man. And I say that intently because back in the day, a common prayer of a rabbi was, Lord, thank you for not making me a Gentile or a woman. We've come a long way. We have a ways to go. But I want you to truly understand where he was in the pecking order. Not only was he a man, but he was a Pharisee, a religious leader, highly respected by all people. Not only was he a man and a religious leader, he was a member of the ruling council, the Sanhedrin, the equivalent of the Supreme Court. He had the respect and the admiration of his peers. He was at the pinnacle of society. You could not get any higher. And this morning, I want to introduce you to the person at the other end of the spectrum. The person that could not possibly get any lower. And that person would be a woman. But not just a woman. A Samaritan woman. Now what you need to understand is that when the northern kingdom fell, the king of Assyria took all the intelligentsia out of the area and scattered them to the winds. Those are called the lost tribes of Israel. He left behind 
the common people, and then he imported people from around his kingdom to intermarry with the locals and assimilate them into their culture. Now, if you happen to read 2 Kings, some really interesting things happened uh, when, when, when that occurred. Actually, because the people no longer knew how to serve the Lord, uh, they were all over the map, and the Lord sent some lions in there to kind of stir things up. And so they went to the king of Assyria, and they said, well, you know, the people, they don't know how to serve the God of this land. Uh, uh, and there's bad stuff going on. And so the king of Assyria actually said, bring back one of the priests that we deported, bring them back to Samaria so that they can teach the people how to worship. And and so they they did that. But we read in 2 Kings that even though they did that, they continued, everybody continued to kind of worship according to their own understanding and their own uh, their own pagan traditions. So, so basically the whole area was a hot theological religious mess. And, the, and the, the people who originally dwelt in the land had become assimilated. Now, we think, well, well, well okay, so historically the Jews have never assimilated. To this day, they have not. They, when they were when they were conquered, when they were when they were uh, when they were exiled, they maintained their identity as as faithful religious Jews, Israelites. They never assimilated. The fact that the that the Samaritans had allowed themselves to be assimilated into foreign religious practices was an absolute anathema for the Jew. In fact, when they came back after being exiled in Babylon, after the fall of the southern kingdom, 70 years later, they come back to to Jerusalem from Babylon to rebuild the temple. The first people who who were there to greet them were the Samaritans. Hey, welcome back. We're glad you're here. We understand you want to rebuild the temple. We're here to help. And they said, no, thanks. We don't want anything to do with you. Huge enmity between the Jews and the Samaritans. It's worse to be a Samaritan than to be a Gentile in the Jewish thinking. So we have a woman who is a Samaritan. And not only is she a woman or a Samaritan, but this is a woman who has been married. Not once, not twice, not three times, but five times. Now, back in the day, divorce was not a good thing. Now, we've come a long way, but remember that it was only a couple of decades ago that even in North America, many perceived divorce to be the unpardonable sin. We've come a long way. We have a ways to go. But here's a woman who's been married five times. 
Now, we don't know if she was divorced five times. We don't know if, if, if some of those husbands died. We just, we just don't know. But five times? You, you know who I have a tremendous amount of respect for? Husband number five. It's like, there were four before me, and yet I'm going gonna, I'm gonna... to... Oh, my gosh. So this is a woman who was married five times, and now she's living with a guy to whom she's not married. We're talking about the lowest of the low. I'm trying to figure out if, if in the day you could come up with a greater disparity, a disparaging, uh, uh, disparity, thank you, dear, a greater disparity between the highest of the height, the Nicodemuses of the world, and this, and this woman, this Samaritan woman, uh, married five times, now living with a guy with whom she's not married. I said, well, gosh, maybe the only thing worse would be if she had leprosy. But then somebody pointed out to me, no, 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 even leprosy sometimes had a cure. And there was forgiveness and restoration there. There was no cure for the brokenness of this woman. So you've got this, this, this huge gap from, from, from the guy who had absolutely everything to a woman who has absolutely nothing. She is the lowest of the low, an outcast amongst outcasts. And that's the woman that we meet in this fourth chapter of the Gospel of John, after we've already met the highest of the height in the person of Nicodemus. The Pharisees, chapter 4, verse 1, heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but His disciples. When the Lord learned this, He left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now He had to go through Samaria... So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour, noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who asks you for a drink, you would have asked Him, and He would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband, and come back. I have no husband, 
she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and now has come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and His worshipers must worship Him, must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know the Messiah, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. I who speak to you am he. The contrasts between the two could not be greater. Beginning with this statement that Jesus had to go through Samaria. Now, what you need to understand is that culturally in the day, the only reason that you would have to go through Samaria is because of a time crunch. For any other reason, you would go around. That was how despised Samaritans and Samaria was. If you had to go through to get to your destination on the other side, it was protocol once you got through Samaria is to stomp your feet so that the dust, the Samaritan dust, would be left behind. And yet we read that Jesus had to go into this neighborhood. Just like He had to go into Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday. And see, he goes into Jerusalem, uh, and it's about the sixth hour. Note the contrast. The sixth hour, it's high noon. The hottest part of the day. The brightest spot of the day. Jesus goes to Samaria and finds himself at the well at high noon. Nicodemus goes to Jesus, but he goes at night. Just look at the contrast. He's sitting there at the well when the Samaritan woman comes. Now, what do you think is going through her mind? The reason that she's coming at noon is because all normal people, whatever normal is, the regular folks, whatever regular is, they would come in the morning or in the late evening to draw water. She went at a time when she knew that there was going to be nobody else there. This woman is broken. She wants to avoid Everyone, even her own people. She is an outcast amongst outcasts. The lowest of the low. And so she's 
walking toward the well. And what do you think is going through her mind when she sees a Jewish man sitting by the well? And she would have known he was Jewish by the clothing that he was wearing. I'm sure that she saw him and went, oh, sugar. I mean, her heart just must have sunk. I just don't have the strength for this. She walks up and much to her surprise, it is Jesus who initiates the conversation. You'll remember that with Nicodemus, Nicodemus, it was Nicodemus who initiated the conversation. This time Jesus initiates the conversation. And he asks for a drink of water. And they have this dance. They go back and forth. They have this conversation. What do you, why? You're asking me? You, of all people? Asking me? And then they have this conversation about this living water that, that those who drink of it will never thirst again. And, and, and oh, that I would never thirst again. Water in the desert is life. It is an essential need to drink water. Can you imagine for this woman having to come in the heat of the day to draw water in order to live, being offered a draft of water that that would satisfy her thirst forever? Give me, give me this drink. And Jesus says, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. That is a statement of despair. Where are we going with this? Jesus says, you're right when you say you have no husband. Fact is, you've had five. And the man you have now is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Penetrating. Painful, personal. Sir, the the woman says, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but... She changes the conversation. An encounter with Jesus is often personal. And it is often painful. But sometimes healing can only occur when we face our pain. And so she goes on and she asks this question about worship. Do we worship on this mountain or do we worship on the other mountain? What you need to understand is when the northern kingdom split off from the southern kingdom... Jeroboam, the king of the north, was fearful that his people, who had to go to Jerusalem once a year to offer sacrifices, wouldn't come home. And so he set up two alternate places to worship. One in Bethel, which is about 10 to 15 miles north of Jerusalem, and one in Dan, which is in the northern part of the kingdom. And interestingly enough, he set up golden calves.
Our, our fathers say that we should worship on this mountain, but you say that you should worship on, uh, in, in, in Jerusalem. A time is coming. Woman, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship um, the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. When Jesus was met by Nicodemus, Nicodemus came and said, Rabbi, we know that you are from God. Nobody can do the things that you do were God not with him. And at that moment, Jesus changes the conversation. Because he knows what the heart issue is for Nicodemus. I tell you the truth, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And that's what Nicodemus wanted. He wanted to see the kingdom of God. He had everything that the society could offer him, and he still was blind to the kingdom of God. We know that you have come from God. Nobody can do what you do if God were not with him. Jesus changes the conversation. I find it interesting that it is Jesus who goes to the woman. He's the one that starts the conversation. And it's the woman who changes the conversation. Because it gets just a little too personal. Now, just as Jesus could have gone with the conversation with Nicodemus, so he could have stuck with the conversation with the woman. Well, well, wait a minute. Before we jump off on this theological tangent, let's talk about your life choices, young lady. But Jesus doesn't do that. He lets her change the conversation. And when he lets her change the conversation, he gives her dignity. He doesn't go to the heart of the issue. He goes to the heart of the individual. He had to go to Samaria. Just like he had to go, I'm almost done, he had to go to Jerusalem. The height, the breadth, the depth, and the length of God's love is not found in the zip code of Jerusalem. It's not only found there. It is also not only found in Samaria. It's not only found in the zip code of Coronado. The height, the breadth, the length, and the depth of God's love is found in God's zip code, which is 12141. Thank you for listening to Island Recast. For more information, please go to gmpc.org. So I've had people ask me over the last couple of days, uh, knowing the title of the sermon today, uh, God's zip code, 12141. What, 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 that's not the zip code for Jerusalem. It's, it's not the, the zip code for Samaria. It's certainly not the, the zip code for Coronado. Somebody pointed out after the first service that it's pretty close uh, to, to, the, uh, to the zip code of, of uh, Annapolis, Maryland. <laughs> but it is God's zip code. 
But don't think numbers, people. Think words. Because the gospel is shared one to one. One person to another person. And the reason we share the gospel one to one is for one. God's zip code knows no boundaries. It knows no social strata. It knows no difference between male, female, Gentile, Greek, rich, or poor. God's grace, God's mercy, God's love is available to everyone. That, my friends, is the greatest triumphal entry we could ever celebrate.